0: Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, if this is your first time here, or maybe you've been here a number of times, but uh, I haven't had the chance to meet you. I'd, I'd love to meet you after the service. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And, and if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We, we are glad that you are with us this morning. As we gather to worship our God, as we sit under his word, as in a few minutes we'll dine at his table, this is a blessing that we can come together. And so, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. If you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. The passage is also found in our order of service, so you can follow along there. Uh, but as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we're we're now into the second half of the book. We're nearing the end. There's only six chapters in this book, and as we've been going through it, we've we've hit this portion of the book where Paul is toggling really back and forth between virtue and vice. Uh, we saw it in chapter four. We're seeing it again in chapter five. It'll continue in chapter six. He'll go back and forth about these actions, these uh, ways of living that we are to put off that are not in keeping with our call as Christians, and there are actions, there are virtues that we are to put on, that we are to seek to embody, that go right in line with our call to follow Christ. And that's what we have this morning again. We have Paul going back and forth, telling us to put off this old way and to put on this new way. And the way he's going to invite us to do this is through this idea of consumption, what we take in, what we consume with our mouths, with our eyes, with our minds. and So let us read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partake partners with them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> well, there is a phrase that I imagine that every one of us have said at one time or another, particularly maybe this season of year. We've just come through the holidays, and so maybe some of us uh, are hoping to shed a few pounds, maybe it's one or two, maybe it's 10 or 15, maybe maybe it's even more than that, and so, so we have this phrase that maybe we keep in the back of our minds that helps to motivate us as we're trying to steer clear of those snacks and those foods that may hinder our ability to shed those pounds, you know what that phrase is, you are what you eat, you are what you eat, we know what that means. That if we eat candy, if we take in ice cream, if we only eat cakes and pies and cookies and those things, that that we'll become like those things, right? We'll, if we eat unhealthy, we'll become unhealthy. But if we eat those things like lean meat and Brussels sprouts and broccoli and and things of that nature, things that are healthy, then we have a greater chance of being healthy, right? You are what you eat. I hate that phrase. (laughs) I hate that phrase because I have such a sweet tooth. Like, I love cake and pie and cake and cookies and cake and ice cream and cake. Like, I just love it. I mean, the thought of ending every single night on the couch with a big mug, because this is how we eat ice cream in my family, a, a mug of ice cream of Double Dunkers. Thank you, Matthew, for turning me on to this. Of Double Dunkers ice cream, right, with chocolate and fudge and cookie dough and maybe some chocolate sauce on top just for good measure. I mean, the thought of doing that every single night before bed That that sounds awesome to me, right? Like, that sounds like, you know, but I know what will happen, right? You are what you eat. I can try and convince myself that if I eat Double Dunkers every night, that I'll become like it, you know, cool and smooth. (laughs) But we know what will really happen, right? I'll become soft and pudgy, right? Like, you just can't do it. You are what you eat. We know that this is the case with those things that we take into our body with food. But the truth is, is that it's more than just a physical concern. You see, we are what we eat talks about everything that we consume. Not just what we consume with our mouths, but what we consume with our eyes, with our hands, with our ears, with our hearts and our minds. That there are all sorts of things surrounding us in our world and in our culture that are inviting us to consume them, to take them in, to feed on them. This isn't something new to our culture this isn't something that is just apparent in 21st century western america this has been a problem ever since really humanity began this was a problem for ephesus the Ephesian church is sitting there they are smack dab in this secular city at a secular time surrounded by secular people and what the culture is inviting them to do is consume things like cultic prostitution Sexual immorality, bigotry, greed. All of these things were a part of the community at Ephesus. In fact, they had cultural institutions. They had created temples for the very advancement of these things. And the church just smack dab in the middle of it. The culture inviting them to take it in. Now, those cultural descriptions that I just said of Ephesus, do do they sound a little familiar to you? It's not very difficult for us to imagine us in the same place as Ephesus, right? We don't have cultural institutions per se, but we have entire businesses that are built around the consumption of people multi-million dollar businesses that are advancing pornography and sex trade and things of that nature that are inviting us to consume people with our minds and our hearts and our eyes. That's the world that we dwell in. That's a culture that we inhabit, not just the Ephesus church, but Christ the King church. That is what is around us. We have a world that's seeking to entice us. We're being bombarded with images and with sound and with noise, and it is trying to shape us and form us in a particular way. That there is an image, uh, a perception of what humanity is to be like, and it is inviting us and trying to woo our hearts to that image. We do it through consumption. We take it in. Paul knows this. He knows that with our eyes and with our ears, with our hands and with our hearts, we are going to consume something. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of what. And So knowing that, Paul is encouraging us not to consume that which will take us unhealthy, not to become what we eat, but instead to take that which is being offered to us in our world and to starve it, to go without it. To put it aside, That's actually what he talks about in verses 3 and 4. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, you know what those things are? Those are ways of consuming people. Those are ways of taking those who have been created in God's image and consuming them for our own personal gratification, sexual immorality. It's looking upon another or even using them, even even willingly, as a means of gratifying our misplaced desires, covetousness, It's a way of looking at what other people have, of their possessions, their notoriety, their relationships, and wanting them for our own. It's looking at another human being as only a way of satisfying our own longings and desires. It is consuming others. We do this, our world does this. And what Paul is saying is that we have to starve ourselves of these things. So much so that he says, even in verse 3, that we must not even name these things among us. Okay, now, what does he mean by that? Because if we're honest, if we took some time and we thought through uh, our own lives and our own hearts and desires, we know that we do this. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, every single one of us at some level is struggling with at least one of those things. Every one of us does. So what does Paul mean that we shouldn't even name these things? I mean, it kind of sounds like we should just hide them away, right? Like we should ignore our struggle. We should ignore the temptations that we have, and we shouldn't bring them to the light. We should hide them into the dark recesses of our hearts. That's what it kind of sounds like, doesn't it? That surely can't be what he means, because we know that one of the great themes of the Bible is not that we would hide our sin, but that we would confess it that we would not bury it in our hearts, but we would bring it to the light and expose it. In fact, James, the author of James, writes that we should confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. So surely that's not what Paul's saying. So what is he saying? What does he mean by this? Well, I think what he means is that, that we aren't supposed to speak of these things in a way that promotes them or accepts them, or, or makes light of them. That's why in verse 4 he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking be named among you, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Now, now it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think about how this might be playing out. right? That there, there is this sin that is maybe... Caught the imaginations of the people there, and how do they ignore it? How do they downplay it? How do they say it's not that big of a deal? Well, we make light of it. We joke about it. We, we, we say that it's not that big of a deal. We say it's not really hurting me. In fact, it's something to laugh at, to make fun of. We could see how that would happen, right? We have probably heard that happen. And what Paul is saying is that that is not for the people of God. That that is not for the people of God. That we are not to make light of these things. That we are not to reduce them down to simply crude jokes or filthy talk. That this should have nothing to do with God's people. So if you are struggling with this, one of those things, it is not for you to bury and to hide away. It is for you to confess. It is not for you to make light of and ignore, it's for you to starve. Now, listen, I imagine that as you hear this, that we are supposed to restrain ourselves, we are supposed to deny ourselves in these ways, that maybe you're wondering I mean, what, what's the big deal? I mean, really, does it hurt anyone for me to have those thoughts in my head? To covet whatever my neighbor has? Who's it really hurting? Right? I mean, that—that that is the question of our world, right? I think it was, uh, um, I just went blank on his name. Anyway, I think it was a guy who once said, the heart wants what the heart wants. Famous actor. I can't remember his name. Woody Allen, thank you. I was looking at you, Ryan. <laughs> Ryan likes Woody Allen. The heart wants what the heart wants. I mean, is doesn't, so shouldn't we give the heart what the heart wants? I mean, that's how our world functions, isn't it? If we have a desire, if we have a longing, well, surely you're supposed to satisfy that desire and you're supposed to satisfy that longing no matter what that desire or longing is. To restrict yourself and restrain yourself, to deny yourself in such a way, is actually more akin to some kind of prudish Victorian Puritanism than it is our modern sensibilities. My goodness, we've moved past that, haven't we? I mean, have you ever wondered that? I guarantee you, if you're not asking that question, your neighbor is. And if your neighbor's not asking that question, the culture is. Why would we restrain ourselves? Why would we deny ourselves those desires? I mean, we're just made this way. We have this longing. So surely we should satisfy it. What is the big deal? You know what those questions are? know what those words are they're empty and they're deceitful that's what paul says that's what he says in our passage in verse six let no one deceive you with empty words what are those empty words things like the pursuit of holiness the pursuit of sexual pu- purity the pursuit of contentment that these things are simply relics of a bygone age those are empty words friends that are seeking to deceive us into believing that purity and holiness, that those aren't things that are all that important. They are empty words that are trying to convince us that a laissez-faire approach to sexual ethics and to ignore the biblical sexual ethics, that it won't really hurt. They're lies. They're empty. They're the lies that the world tells us, but they're also the lies that we tell ourselves to excuse our sin. This is a huge deal. In fact, it's so big of a deal that Paul says it's a matter of our souls. Look at verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. But this is a matter of our souls. No inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Paul is telling us that those who embrace this deceit and pursue immorality are putting our very souls in danger because we are putting aside Christ. See, what's fascinating is Paul says that those who try to deceive us with these empty words is because of these that The wrath of God will come upon them. Isn't that fascinating that those who have spent their life consuming others will one day be consumed by God's judgment? Friends, God's people are not to be consumers of sinful practice, but we are to starve that sinful practice. But how do we do this? How are we supposed to fight against these sins and these temptations? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. Some very practical things. One is, I think that as God's people, living in the time in which we live, we need to be more critical and more thoughtful about the things that we are consuming. I'm not talking about double dunkers. We need to be more thoughtful about the music that we're listening to. We need to be more considerate about the entertainment that we are taking in. We need to think about the movies and the messages that are being promoted in our television shows, and we need to think about the things that we're reading on social media and magazines. We need to be more thoughtful. But you know what? This is really hard to do, because many of those things actually would fall in the category of probably amoral. Right, so so we're not just painting a broad brushstroke. I'm not encouraging us to everyone go home and delete your iTunes account. Before you do that, I'd like to see what you're going to get rid of because maybe I'd like... No, I'm just kidding. Okay? <laughs> That's not what I'm advocating here. That's not what I'm advocating. But what I am advocating is the fact that there are some things that entice me me to temptation and sin that will not entice you. And there are some things that are going to entice you. There might be shows and programs that you're going to watch or things that you're going to read that will have no ethical bearing on me, but it will lead you to sin. And so we actually need a lot of wisdom in doing this, in sorting through the the different cultural messages that we are engaged with. And so we need to invite others into this. And so teenagers, youth, children, okay, y'all need to invite your parents into this. I know they don't understand your music, and I know they don't understand the lingo, and I know they don't probably like your movies, but you need to invite them to watch those movies with you and to listen to the music you're listening to and to help you think critically about those things. And adults, we need to invite one another into this. We need to help one another to say and to show and to remind us how these things that we are taking in may be leading us towards sinful practice, not godly practice. This isn't just something adults do to children. It's something that we do to one another. So as we are in analyzing the world around us, as we are considering, thinking critically about these things that we are taking in, we need, to, we need one another's help to do it. But once we've done it, once we've analyzed, once we've, uh, once we've made note of those things that lead us astray, we then need to take them and rip them from our hearts. We need to be done with them. We need to put them aside, and so this might mean a radical departure from the way in which we are living right now. It might mean that some of y'all need to stop reading the things you're reading on Facebook. It may mean that some of y'all need to stop listening to some of the music that you are listening to. It may mean that some of y'all need to stop watching the movies that you are watching or reading the magazines that you're reading or spending time with some of the people you're spending time with need to put it away. In fact, that's what Paul tells us. In verse 7, when he's talking about these people, these ways of leading us into sin, what does he say? Therefore, do not become partners with them. That if there is something that is moving us to temptation and sin, we need to be done with it. See, as we remove temptations, as we start to starve our sin, its appeal and its sweetness actually has less power over us the grip that it has on our heart starts to loosen, and we have strength to resist it. I actually experienced this a number of years ago. About four or five years ago, uh, I read an article online, um, and I I normally don't make uh, dietary decisions based on stuff I read on Facebook, um, right, Uh, because most of the time it's not very scientifically driven, right, but but this one I decided to go with because uh, I read something that said, uh, talked about the, how bad soda was for you. Now, I don't know if it was true or not, but it had like a penny that dropped into a can of Coke and like seconds later it had dissolved, right? Like it didn't do that, but it was something crazy like that. And so I thought, oh, that can't be good for my stomach. So, um, so I stopped drinking soda. Um, my family still drinks it from time to time, but, but I stopped drinking it. And this was actually pretty hard for me at first because I love Diet Cherry Coke. I mean, it is good, right? It is sweet and the cherry flavor, it's wonderful. And so, so every time I go out to lunch, I had to remind myself as I was going to meet someone that I'm not gonna have Diet Coke and I'm not gonna have a Coke and I'm not gonna have Diet Cherry Coke, even if it's there, I'm gonna have lemonade or unsweet tea or water, right? And I had to keep reminding myself of these things. But you know what happened after a little while was I stopped wanting it. I stopped having to remind myself that I'm going to drink water or unsweet tea. Well, about two summers ago, I found myself in Mexico. I was on a missions trip. It was the very first night we're at dinner, and I have this excruciating headache. It's terrible. And I don't normally get headaches, and, and unfortunately, I had left my Tylenol or Advil or whatever I brought back in the hotel. And so, so now I'm looking around the table, seeing if there's some caffeine, because maybe I'll have a cup of coffee. But it's July in Mexico, and there's, you know, it's hot, so we're not drinking hot coffee at night, right? So, but right in front of me is a three-liter bottle of Coke. Okay, not two-liter Three liter (laughs) and I've got this awful headache and so you know uh, I decide well I'll I'll have a little bit of caffeine so I pour myself a glass and I take a sip and it was disgusting it was awful it was syrupy and it was sweet I took that first sip and I'm thinking man my headache I, I can go with my headache rather than having to take another drink of this terrible soda And what was amazing is, is that just years before, I thought it tasted so good. But now that I'd been without it for so long, it tasted disgusting. I wanted nothing to do with it. And the same is true of sin. We know that sin begets sin. Then once you sin once, it's easier to sin a second time and a third and a fourth. And before too long, what's the big deal? We're not even thinking about it. Start deceiving ourselves and thinking it's sweet and it's good. But when we go without it, the strength that it has over our hearts, it actually starts to weaken. And we start to taste it later, and it doesn't taste sweet anymore. It tastes disgusting, and we want nothing to do with it. Friends, we are to starve our sin We're to starve it so that it would no longer taste good, that it would no longer entice us, but that we would be done away with it. You know, Paul, as he's talking to us about what it looks like to be the church, he he doesn't just simply say that we're to starve our sin because he knows we're consumers. We're going to consume something. He actually tells us to consume. Consume what is good, that we are to feed on Christ. That as we starve our sin, that we replace that consumption with feeding on Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, now this talk of consumption, it's really just another way of talking about imitation. Because you are what you eat. What you eat, you will become like. What you consume, you will imitate And what we are to do is we are to feed on Christ. And in doing that, we will imitate him. That's what Paul says, be imitators of God. And what does it look like to imitate God? He tells us, walking in love as Christ loved us. And Christ has shown his love for us in that he gave himself up for us. Now think about how different that is from the consumption of sin. Sexual immorality, covetousness, impurity, that is the consuming of another. But the love of Christ It's the giving of love for the sake of another. It's not satisfying our own gratifications. It's satisfying another's. That's what Jesus does. Love isn't primarily about self. It's about others. About giving yourself for the sake of another. And that's what Jesus did. In John chapter 15, he says, Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, You are my friends. He laid down his life for you. He laid down his life to show you his love, to offer himself as a sacrifice to God. That's what verse 2, the end of it, tells us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now that language, fragrant offering, that is uh, hearkening back to Old Testament sacrificial system language. So in the Old Testament, if you're reading through your Bible, um, you're going to get to Leviticus pretty soon. Um, Leviticus is a very fascinating book. And there is a phrase in Leviticus that keeps popping up, and it has to do with every one of the offerings, every one of the sacrifices. That when they are done properly, that it is a pleasing aroma or a fragrant offering. Okay, so this is how it functioned in, in Leviticus. In the Old Testament, God's people, his saints, would come to the temple on a regular basis. they bring a heifer or a bull or, or a lamb, or if they were poor, they would bring a, a bird. And they would slit the throat, they would let the blood pour out, and then they would light it on fire. They would consume it with fire. There were some other things, but, but that's the gist. And as the fire was uh, engulfing this animal, the smoke would go up and it said that if it was done as God had commanded, that it was a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering. And what that meant was that God had accepted it for the purpose for which it was offered. So for instance, in Leviticus chapter 17, on the Day of Atonement, so the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would come and he would have the two bowls and he would send one off as the scapegoat, and the other one he would sacrifice and kill. And it would go up the smoke, and God would smell it, and it would be a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering, because on that day, all of God's people's sins would be atoned for, the Day of Atonement. They would be done away with. God would forget them. That's what Jesus' sacrifice does. You see, when Paul says it is a fragrant offering, A sacrifice to God, what he is saying is he is hearkening back to this Old Testament understanding of the sacrifices and saying Christ's sacrifice is the better one. That whereas there were lambs and heifers and even birds at times that were offered up for the sake of God's people, Jesus' sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice. That it is better than all those other ones. That is better because those sacrifices had to be offered year after year after year. And they were mediated by a human priest. But Christ's sacrifice is so good and it is so pure. And God re- receives it as acceptable so well that, that it only has to be offered once. That he mediates his own sacrifice. He does what no other high priest can do. He does what no other sacrifice can do so that all of God's people's sins for all time are atoned for. That's what it means that he is the better offering. That's what it means that his sacrifice was a fragrant offering to God. Okay, now what does this have to do with starving sin and feeding on Christ? Everything. This has everything to do with it, y'all. Because Jesus didn't offer himself simply so that we would have eternal insurance, so that we would have eternal life with the Father. He did offer us that, but, but he didn't give us that so then we could do whatever we wanted today. Jesus' perfect sacrifice, his perfect offering on our behalf was so that we would have life eternal with the Father, but that we would have life of holiness and love today. That's what his sacrifice has to do with this. His sacrifice has to do with us starving our sin and putting it away and feeding on him. I mean, how much more beautiful is it that self-giving love is reflected in the cross than selfish objectification? I mean, that is beautiful. Friends, we imitate what we consume. We are what we eat. And so... So because Christ has offered himself, because he has given himself, we are to feed on him by meditating daily on what he has done. We are to read in his word, his self-giving love. We are to imitate the glorious grace that he has shown to us, coming together, singing of his grace and of his mercy, feeding and imitating him. See, because, friends, when you have tasted something good, you want more of it. When you witness something beautiful, you want to imitate it. And some of you have had the the good fortune of experiencing the Canadian cultural icon that is Tim Hortons donuts. Just just a show of hand, anybody? Yeah, there we go. Wonderful. Y'all are the y'all are the chosen, the few. Well, my kids have uh, had the, the great fortune of not just having Tim Hortons in the states, but they've had the you know they've been doubly blessed because they've had it in Canada, um, you know where the water's a little purer and the grit. No, I'm just kidding, but um, <laughs> but uh, but maybe you're sitting there thinking, Penny. I mean, it's it's a donut shop, right? Like, what's the big deal? And to which I would retort, uh, it's not just a donut shop. Okay, it is a staple of the actual social fabric of Canada, and that is not hyperbole. Um, Every single morning, you would drive by what seemed like every other street corner in Canada with the Tim Hortons, and the two drive-through windows were backed up into the parking lot as people awaited their coffee. And it was normal. After my sister moved out, she would come home to visit us, and on her way over across town, she would call and say, hey, can I pick up some Timmies on the way? Anybody want a double-double? You all don't know what that means, but she's asking, do you want me to stop by and get this wonderful thing that we can eat and drink over? And we would, of course, say Yes. So anyway, um, so it's more than a donut shop. Uh, It really is a part of the Canadian landscape. Well, on one morning in December 2012, uh, a group of patrons at One Tim Hortons in Winnipeg, Manitoba, experienced more than just wonderful donuts and good coffee. They experienced something good, uh, the generous gifts of others. You see it started with the second patron of the day at the drive-through window. They decided they were going to pay for the order of the person behind them. And this started a chain reaction that went for 3 hours and 228 orders of person after person paying for the person behind them, right? So you had your coffee paid for and you paid for the person behind you who paid for the and it went on for 3 hours and 228 orders, 3 hours. Now, why did this happen? Like, why did these people just keep imitating what had been done to them and what they had experienced? Now, we could chalk this up to the uh, incredibly good nature and courteous uh, people of Canada, right, that there's maybe something unique about Canadians. But we know that that's not true. We know that that's why we wouldn't chalk it up to that, but that there's something actually deeper that's true about all of us. That when we have tasted something good, when we have experienced something sweet, we want to duplicate it. We want to imitate it. We just naturally do it. We can't even help but not do it. We, we instinctively want to duplicate beauty, and we want, instinctively want to duplicate good. We want to imitate it. That when we have experienced goodness, we want more goodness. When we see what is lovely, we want more loveliness in our lives. When we consume that which is beautiful, we want to imitate beauty. Well, The 229th person finally stopped. They stopped. Even though their uh, four coffees had been paid for, they were unwilling to pay for the three coffees of the person behind them. And the reporter who was talking about this, reporting on this, called this person a Grinch. (laughs) right around christmas time so it was fitting they were a grinch we all know that there was actually something very cold about what that 229th customer did to receive something sweet and good and to consume it for yourselves i mean he 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 clearly was just a tourist (laughs) (laughs) couldn't have been canadian but we know that That when goodness has been given to you, when beauty has been demonstrated before you, when love has been poured out on you, we are not to simply consume it for ourselves, but we are to imitate it. We are to take it in and we are to reflect it back. Friends, we have been given something good and we have been given something sweet, something beautiful and full of love, and that is Christ. He has loved us and given himself for us that we would actually consume his love. And in consuming his love that we would starve our sin and we would imitate him. That we would become more like him to one another and to our world that we would be demonstrators of the love that Christ has shown to us by getting rid of our sin and feeding on him. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you for your grace and your glory. We thank you that you have shown love and kindness to your people, that you have poured upon us your grace. We ask that you would make us imitators of that grace. Help us to put aside our sin, to starve it, to be done with it in our lives and our hearts, and to embrace Christ, feeding on him. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name.